0: Oh, good morning. <laughs> the power of a bad example. What well, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter 5? Happy Memorial Day weekend. I love this weekend, as I know you do, as we remember the sacrifices that have been made for us that we might have these freedoms to worship without government intrusion, which is a rarity in history. So be grateful for the men and women who gave their lives. And as this video has shown, uh, there is a baby bottle campaign for Women's Hope, which is not only engaged in saving babies, but also placing them in homes for adoption. And right now they're having a financial, um, if not crisis, that they're struggling financially as their ministries increase, and and so they're hoping to raise fifty thousand dollars through the baby bottle campaign, and so we're going to have two hundred bottles out in the foyer after the service. We'll have two hundred more next next week, and so please make that a priority. Because I'm not sure there is any more important ministry going on in the world right now, given our culture of death. And and so I am so grateful for Women's Hope and Daria and 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 all of those who are involved in, in that ministry. So please grab a bottle and fill that thing up. And they'll take coins, but they also like the kind of money where if you shake it, you don't hear anything. <laughs> Just paper. And even checks, they'll take checks as well. Well, let's uh, pray. Uh, We're going to be in John 5, uh, verses 15 to 29. And let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this time. I also want to um, just have a prayer of thanksgiving for the military and in all that God has secured for us through um, our, our military. Father of mercy, we thank you this morning that we know you as the great I am, as we have sang this morning uh, because of the all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do want to begin today on Memorial Day weekend remembering the men and women, the countless innumerable men and women uh, through our nation's history who sacrificed life and limb that we might be here today. We thank you for them, Lord. We thank you for your common grace of the military. And we pray, Lord, if there's any here today that are struggling with the loss of a a loved one who perhaps died in battle or died in service, we pray the comforts of our Lord Jesus Christ would come to bear on their hearts. Father, we also want to remember those in Texas who have lost so much in this moral evil, this moral tragedy this week. We pray for the the churches in that city, in that area that love the word of God, who believe the gospel, that they would engage these families and love them holistically. Feeding them, caring for them, giving them the only hope that we have in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in the multitude of their anxieties, your comforts would delight their souls. Father, we recognize that what our country needs is an awakening, and we pray for that. We pray for a spiritual awakening, and we know that that begins in our churches. So we pray for revival in our churches. And Father, we do pray for Women's Hope. We thank you for that vital ministry, and we just would ask, Lord, that you would provide their needs. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to use them in a powerful way to bring life to bear in a culture of death. We now pray that you would give us a word from the Gospel of John that we can hold on to uh, in this time, this difficult time in our nation's history. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for context, for those of you that weren't here last week, if you would pick up with me in chapter 5, verse 2. Again, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 29, but this passage has a context. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid, For 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Of course, he was believing a superstition. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Of course, this was their man-made rules. It was not the actual law that they were quoting. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Amen. As you know, Memorial Day is a federal holiday To remember our U.S. military, uh, in particular those who gave their lives on the field of battle. But a notable fact about Memorial Day, maybe you haven't thought about this, there are no U.S. presidents for whom this applies. Because no sitting president has ever gone on the field of battle, and therefore no U.S. president has ever died on the field of battle. Now, why is that? Well, most nations do anything to protect their leader. Uh, this is the unspoken principle of chess. In chess, you uh, have to protect the king because when the king falls, the kingdom is lost. And therefore, the king has to be protected at all costs. Now, an example of that comes from... D-Day. Now, we're going to be remembering D-Day. Next week will be the 78th anniversary of D-Day. June 6th, when the Allied forces crashed the the beaches of Normandy. And that was the definitive battle that would put an end to the war. But leading up to D-Day, the Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill, planned to be there. He planned to be there with his men. He planned to be there on the ground fighting at D-Day. And King George VI caught wind about that. And we know this from some letters that have since been found. And so King George VI wrote Churchill a letter encouraging him not to go to the front lines of battle. And here's what he says. My dear Winston, I want to make one more appeal to you not to go to sea, On D-Day, this was written on June 6th, so this will be this Thursday, 78 years ago. Please consider my own position. I'm a younger man than you. I'm a sailor. And as king, I'm the head of all three services. There's nothing I would like better than to go to sea. But I have agreed to stay at home. Is it fair that you should then do exactly what I should have liked to do myself? If the king cannot do this, it does not seem right that his prime minister should take his place. And then he closes, your sincere friend, George. Well, here's the point. Kings and presidents and prime ministers have to be protected at all cost. That's the way, the key way to protect and preserve their kingdoms and nations but as we approach our text we need to understand something very clearly King Jesus did exactly the opposite in fact his kingdom would not come except for his death so with royal courage he made himself of no reputation He underwent the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and remained under the power of death for a time so that we might experience the joys and the eternity of his kingdom. We see that trajectory more and more in this present text. This is when the heat begins to be turned up on Jesus that would ultimately lead to the cross. And it all started when he healed a man. He healed a man who had been a paralytic, uh, an invalid of some kind for 38 years. He healed this man, as we just read, on the Sabbath. And then when he healed the man, he told the man to get up and take his mat and go. And that causes a massive controversy to break out. A controversy that will not end until Good Friday. In fact, we see this at the very beginning of of verse 15. The controversy is this. Jesus has broken, not God's law. Jesus has broken man's law. Look with me in verse 15. The man went away. And told the Jews (coughs) that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. There it is. This is why it began. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, as we saw last week, the rabbis centuries earlier, had written a book. Essentially, the name of the book was How Not to Break the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath being the fourth commandment. But they had made up 39 ways to break the Sabbath. They were man-made laws, but it was kind of like a fence around the law. It was to really protect you from breaking the law so you don't even get close to breaking it. They made up these man-made rules To protect you from breaking God's law. For instance, if you broke a bone on the Sabbath, it could not be reset by a physician on the Sabbath. How about this one? If your house just crumbled, let's say a wind just blew down your house and rubble is all over you. They would allow you to remove just enough rubble to see if the person under the rubble was alive. If the person was alive, you could pull them out. If he wasn't alive, you had to leave them there till after the Sabbath. Or if you spit. If you spit and your spit hit dirt and caused a furrow. That was considered Plowing which was work on the Sabbath. But if it hit a a rock, it was not considered work. You were okay. Well, the 39th and the final rule of this book that they had written was that a person could not carry anything from point A to point B. And this man had been carrying a mat. And hence the issue. And Jesus, for his part... Although the Jewish tradition—again, it's tradition; it's not the law of God—they recognized there were exceptions where the Sabbath could be broken. For instance, for instance if a person, uh, their life was in danger, you could break the Sabbath to help this person. In this particular case, this man had been in an invalid for 38 years. It wasn't an emergency. And so they considered Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath as working, as breaking the Sabbath. And as a later account in Luke 13 tells us, just to bring clarity here, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. And the irony here is palpable. It's it's, it's remarkable. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will describe him that way. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he is bringing rest to broken people. Again, the Sabbath means rest, right? He's bringing rest by his healings on the Sabbath... And the real religious people are plotting on the Sabbath on how to kill him. It's quite remarkable. That is the controversy that has broken out. But with the controversy comes the great confession. Again, in church history, it's been great controversies that have broken out where we we learn our theology better. Well, this is one of the most important passages in the Bible, and it comes in the context of controversy because in the midst of that controversy Jesus is going to make a confession and here's what his confession is and it is going to be scandalous Jesus is the eternal son of God it's going to set him off and to argue his equality with God he's going to make three main points the first one we see in verse 17 Jesus, the Son of God, shares one will with the Father on every day. In other words, He and the Father are on the same page. If you want a fancy term, it's the inseparable operations of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and we would even say God the Spirit are on the same page. They are all doing the same thing. There is one will. Notice in verse 17, but Jesus answered them. It's interesting, they didn't ask him a question, but he answered them. He took control of the conversation. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, that's interesting because we read in Genesis 2 that God rested on the Sabbath. But one of the issues that was raised in the Jewish world uh, was this. If God is resting on the Sabbath, and now we are in the Sabbath, who's preserving, who's governing the universe? And so they recognize that that rest must be rest from creation itself. God has to be doing something. And so if God is continuing to preserve and govern the universe, that means he's not totally at rest. All the Jews recognize that. And Jesus is saying, if you can recognize my works are the works of God, then you have to recognize I'm not breaking the Sabbath either. In fact, to make his Case, Jesus uses intentional language that he knew would lead ultimately to his death this is a king who must die this is a king who's not preserving his life notice the language he says my father my father that is remarkable language my father is working until now now the Jews use the language of our father But Jesus is personalizing this and he's saying, My Father. And they understand his point. He is claiming to be equal in essence and power and glory to the Father, to the Heavenly Father. Notice in verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, by the way, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was breaking their perceived understanding of the Sabbath. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. One theologian said, if Jesus is not God, someone needs to tell him. Because he certainly believed he was God. He was making himself equal with God. Well, notice in verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly... Or maybe your translation, verily, verily. Uh, The original language is amen, amen. When Jesus says that, it's kind of a a way of of putting it in italics or putting it in quotation or, or putting it in bold font. What he's about to say, take note. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the Father doing. This is high theology. I've prayed all week about how to make this as clear as possible to you. This is high theology. Verse uh, verse 19, the second part. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So what Jesus says in this text is what J.C. Ryle calls one of the deepest things in the Bible. It's hard to get much deeper than what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is saying that he and the Father share a single will. They share a single will. They're on the same page. There is an inseparable operation in the Godhead. He's only doing what he sees the Father doing. This is so vital for us. Uh, The persons of the Godhead share the same essence. They share the same nature. There's one nature in the Godhead. And they share the same glory, power, power. They share the same will. And yet, at the same time, there is an order in the Godhead. You see it here. The Son has his nature from the Father. So the the, the theology here, if you don't like theology, you just need to close the Bible right here. Uh, The theology here is is mind-blowing. It is utterly exalted. And it's intended to provoke worship. That's the purpose. John is giving us this so that we might worship this son. With that said, there's also something very practical here as well. Jesus is saying something here that every father, every father here needs to hear. Sons learn life from their fathers. So let's think about this for a second. Just get the real practical. If you're a critical father, your sons will become critical. If you're a slandering father, your sons will be slanderers. If you're a gossiping father, or a negative father, or a judgmental father, your sons will become negative and critical and judgmental. If... Church life is not that very important to you when they leave home, it will not be very important to them. If the gospel is not your lifeline, it's very likely the gospel will not be your son's lifeline. Sons learn life from the fathers. You have never seen a mass murderer who goes into a a school as a wicked coward and shoot up a school who has a healthy relationship with a godly father. Those kind of terrorists do not exist. This is apprenticeship imagery. And it's designed to teach us something about fatherhood. Remember, the father's are to imitate the father. Ephesians chapter 5. In an apprenticeship, in an apprenticeship, an apprentice copies the work from a, a skilled artisan. In the ancient Near East, the artisan was generally a father and the apprentice was the son. And in some mysterious way, From all eternity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, is learning. The Father shows Jesus what he's doing, and he promises greater works here than the healing of an invalid. That's what it says. It's remarkable. I will show you more greater works than this will be shown. Now, why does the Father show Jesus what he does? Well, why does he authorize Jesus on the Sabbath? Why will he show him greater works? The second part of verse 20, or the last part of verse 20, tells us. Again, this is one of the points of the Bible. So that you may marvel. So that you may marvel. So God gives us this deep theology. Not so that we can win battles on the blogosphere. And impress everyone with how much theology we know. It's so that you may marvel. Well, notice in verse 21. For as the father raises the son and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus, for him to claim to have power to raise the dead would have been blasphemous as well. The Jews believed that Lord, the Lord, the great I Am that we sang about this morning, he had three great keys, all right? The first key he had was to open up the heavens and bring rain. Now, that's important in agrarian culture. But in, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He had the, the keys to open up the heavens and bring rain. The second key that the Jews believed the Lord had, that was unique to him, is he had the key to open up the womb and bring conception. And by the way, if you are ever wondering what is the strongest argument for the pro-life position, it's not a political argument. There are political conservatives who, who would not know God if he stared them in the face. The strongest argument for the pro-life position has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the fact that it is God who brings conception in the womb. And abortion reverses what God has done. There is never a cause for that, a ground for that. It is God who brings conception in the womb. And the Jews believed it's God who opens up the womb. And the third key that God had, based on Ezekiel 37, 13... Only God had the key to open up the grave, to bring resurrection. And so again, Jesus in these words is equating his work with the work that only the Father does. And not only that, verse 21, now this may not fit your theology, but remember, our theology has not been perfected yet. Our theology is in process. The Word of God's perfect, but our theology isn't. And so the Word of God has to comp- always chasten our theology. What we see here is Jesus claims sovereignty and salvation. Notice again in verse 21. It's remarkable language. So also the, also the Son gives life... To whom he will. Now just in case you think John must have missed that one. Matthew says the same thing. Quoting Jesus in Matthew 11. Listen to these words. All things, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27. Have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But not only that, Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father, also as a judge. Notice in verse 22, the Father judges no one. Now, if you could, you could take that out of context. Uh, you could take that's just one example of taking a half verse and making it your theology. Father judges no one, but read the rest of it. But He has given all judgment to the Son. Again, to the Jew, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I Am, was the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18 tells us that he is the judge of the earth and he will do right. He will do justly. And this is utterly staggering. Again, presidents, kings, prime ministers, they protect themselves in war. Jesus is walking head first into a war that will ultimately lead to his death. And he is saying, you think you're judging me. And ultimately, I will be your judge in the last day. And verse 23 tells us why. That all may honor the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see the equality there? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. One day, every knee will bow, and every knee will honor the Son. Some will honor him in their condemnation, and others will honor him in their salvation. But every day, but one day, every knee will honor the son. But notice, to honor the son is to honor the father. To honor the father is to honor the son. And there are many who erroneously think that you can be rightly related to God the father apart from Jesus Christ. Well, you can think that. But it doesn't mean you are right. Jesus is saying here, that's impossible. It's not possible. To honor the Father means you must honor the Son. You come to the Father through the Son. And the reason for that is there's only one who's ever taken the wrath of God and then was raised from the grave. And it's Jesus Christ. And that's why he's the only way to salvation. So Jesus, to prove his sonship, claims his one will with the Father on every day. And that brings us to the second part here. Jesus gives resurrection life to sinners in the present day. Again, he's making his argument that he's the eternal son of God. So the second argument he makes is Jesus gives resurrection life in the present day this is one of those verses verse 24 that it would be helpful to memorize it's a wonderful verse for for evangelism truly truly I say to you again there's those words this means take note what he's about to say is vital truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me notice how he's equating the two To believe the word of Christ is to believe the Father who sent him. Whoever believes my word, here's my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So in this paragraph that's going to extend to verse 29, we're going to see four kinds of resurrection that Jesus is going to affect. The first is a spiritual resurrection, what we know as the the new birth. That's in verses 24 and 25. In verse 26, he will imply his own bodily resurrection. And then in verses 27 and 28 29, he speaks about the future bodily resurrection of every believer and then he will close with the bodily resurrection of even the unbeliever. In other words, even the unbelievers eternal judgment will be embodied will be an embodied judgment but first of all we see here uh, his promise of resurrection regeneration new life new birth to lost sinners who repent and believe now what's remarkable here he's confronting his opponents remember who he's speaking to here He's speaking to people who hate him. He's speaking to people who want him dead. And here he offers them eternal life. This is marvelous grace. So verse 21 speaks about this uh, sovereign grace and salvation. Verse 24 speaks to the universal call. The universal call. The gospel... That saves, Jesus said, is his very word. Paul would later say in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. So let's look at this verse real quickly. First of all, whoever hears my word. It's a gospel word. And we're going to learn as Revelation unfolds that it's a gospel that centers on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to pay the sin debt of every single person who would believe in him. And then he's going to be raised from the grave that they might have the pardon, the justification to life. And it is to believe the father who sent him to believe that word. Second, faith in Jesus is the dividing line between condemnation and eternal life. Faith in Jesus. By the way, that's why we're a missional church. Because we believe that truth. Faith is the dividing line in Jesus Christ. Third, notice, has eternal life. That's present tense. That means once you have it, you can't lose it. It's not eternal life if you could lose it. It's temporal life. And so it's present tense Whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, will not be condemned. That's your natural state. He has, she has, crossed over, he says, from death to life. Has passed from death to life. Let me give you one more point here. That word passed, maybe your translation reads crossed over. It's in the perfect tense. Now, why is that important? Because in the perfect tense, in the original language... It means something that's happened in the past and has permanent effects. Again, you cannot lose your salvation. Once you pass over from death to life, you have eternal life. And Jesus is making that promise to these very people who hate him. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't deserve eternal life. These people want to kill him. And he is offering them eternal life. There is no sin beyond the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to go to the cross in a short time. And he's going to pay for those sins. If you will trust in him. Third point that Jesus makes here is he will raise the dead on the future day. And so he has one will with the Father every day. He promises eternal life on the present day. And he's going to raise the dead on the future day. Look with me in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, again, what he's about to say is important. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear. Think about That's remarkable language. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Again, let me give you a fancy term, but it's so important. We learn these terms. Eternal generation. The Son is eternally generated of the Father. Let me tell you, you go, why are you giving me that fancy term? This has been a very important term in church history. So important was it that John Gill, who was a Baptist preacher in the 18th century, he exercised church discipline on a person who denied eternal generation. That's how important it is. Because what eternal generation literally means is that Jesus eternally comes forth from the Father, which means he's equal, in essence, to the Father, but distinct from the Father. To deny that is to devalue his his godness are to make two gods rather than one God. And so from all eternity, God the Father communicated His essence to the Son. Don't try to figure that out. We're talking about an infinite God. But to quote the Nicene Creed, which we all hold dear here at Lakeview, the Son is light from light, true God from true God the son receives the gift of life in himself from the father but it's an eternal gift and with the result that the son has eternally been equal with the father that's the argument that he's making with these these leaders Fred Sanders who is uh, one of the leading Scholars on the Trinity today says it this way. Jesus' resurrection would be the event in which the life the Father eternally gave to the uncreated Son would be given to the incarnate Son. And so this speaks not only of the being of the triune God, but also the coming of the resurrection. The life that he has in the Godhead, he will now have as a human. And so something happened that's unique at Easter something very unique but here Jesus is saying that the, the life that he has in the, the father has always been the case and that's why he's able to offer life and that brings us to the final point the, the, Jesus will be the final judge on the last day let's move through this, verse 27 and he has given him authority and the reason he has that authority is because he's eternally generated of the father, okay He has the authority of God himself. It it, it is not a derived authority. It's an inherent authority. He has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So here, the Jews would have known he was referring to the the figure of Daniel 7 who came to the Ancient of Days. And we, we sang about the Ancient of Days. Thank you, Adam. And he is restoring... What has been lost back to the ancient of days and to God's people. And, and the Jews knew that that would be Messiah who would do that. So again, he is, he's speaking about his Messiahship. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this. Now, he's already told us to marvel. There's a way of marveling that's a faith. And there's a way of marveling that's an unbelief. This is what he's referring to here. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs... We'll hear his voice. So when we die, if you're a believer, your spirit, your soul goes immediately to the presence of God right now. But your body remains in the grave until the last day, right? But there's coming a day when our bodies will be united to our souls. That's what he's referring to here. And they will come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil... the resurrection of judgment that's what Jesus is saying to these people who want to kill him now what does this mean doing good and doing evil he's already said that our salvation is all of grace whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me but if you believe in the son the fruit of that is that you will do good and if you don't believe in the son there won't be fruit that's what he's saying here And he doesn't appear to see fruit from these people who want to kill him. But he is promising resurrection. The very hope they had based on Ezekiel 37. But it won't come unless the king dies. Unless the father who sent the king allows his son to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This morning I watched a video... Of this kid in a rodeo. And he gets bucked off his Bronco. And he is knocked out. He's on the ground. And the, the, the Bronco is jumping up and down. And is about to come down on that little kid who's been knocked out. And his father jumps over the fence and, and goes and covers the sun as I think any father in here would do. Didn't even think twice about it. He covered the son, why? To protect the son from certain death. That's not what the Heavenly Father did. In the Godhead, there was one will, and that will was, we're going to send you, Son of God. And the Lord Jesus said, I will go. And he went, and he wasn't protected from death. He took the death. And he's telling the Jews that who want to kill him. And he's telling us that this morning. He took the death and then was raised, ushering in resurrection hope for everyone who would trust in the Son. Adonis Vadu says this, The mystery of the incarnation cannot be explained by any amount of effort. It can only be confessed... And revered. Isn't that wonderful? It can only be confessed and revered. Indeed, this is revealed to us that we might honor him and that we might marvel. It's heady language, but it's so that we might marvel. And I also recognize, though, in a crowd this large, not everyone marvels at the sun. It's unfortunate, but it's a reality. Not everyone honors the Son, which means not everyone honors the Father. But here's the glory of what Jesus is saying to people who want to kill him. He is saying it doesn't have to be the case. Because whoever hears his word and believes him who sent him will have eternal life and will not be condemned. You will cross over immediately from death to life. And we want to offer you that this morning as Adam and the... The band comes forward. We're going to have pastors here at the ends of the row row, to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you. What does it mean to believe in the Son? What does it mean to commit to the Son? What does it mean to honor the Father through the Son? What does it mean to have eternal life? We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. Won't you respond to that gospel call this morning as we stand and as we sing?